This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MDT podcast. My name is Dr. Joe Preston and I am a consultant geriatrician in London. And I'm Ian Wilkinson. I'm also a consultant geriatrician. I work down in Surrey. And this episode is going to be on loneliness. We put together this episode with the help of our faculty members, Wendy Grosner, who is a nurse at the University of Surrey, Pang Trangma, who is a physician associate at East Surrey Hospital, and Gabor CK, who's a general practitioner working in Brighton. And this week we're going to understand a bit about what loneliness is and how to identify it. At the end of this, we'd like you to feel more confident in identifying whether someone is lonely and be able to help staff to prepare and engage in constructive dialogue with older adults who may be experiencing loneliness in ways that can bring about positive change for them. And then to think about the fact that ageing may itself impact on loneliness and to understand how older people may view loneliness and the impact that it might have on their wellbeing. But first... We're going to have a little think about what you've seen on Twitter and social media this week. Yes. So something I saw on Twitter, which was actually from The Guardian that I quite liked, uh, talking about an American beauty magazine called Allure, which is apparently one of their best-known uh, beauty magazines, that is has announced it's going to stop using the expression and saying anti-ageing. So they've said it's it's a redundant term and it's uh, reinforcing negative stereotypes. So they've said this is not something we're going to use anymore. So they've they've banned cool. it from all from all of their magazines from here on in, which I think is really nice. That's and really a really cool. positive step, yeah. especially for an industry that's quite youth driven. Yeah, that's very good. So I've got one that I've been storing up for a few weeks. <laughs> um, so if you head back through through my timeline, it's something I liked ages and it's ages ago. It's actually from 1996. It's not quite that long. It's from Graham Ellis, mm-hmm. who is a, a geriatrician. And it's a photo from the corridor at Bradford Royal Hospital. And in the photo is some older people. And on either side of the corridor, they are projecting films. And so they've turned the corridor into a, a mini cinema. Oh, that's really nice. That's really cool. So now we're going to start with a definition. Yes. So um, this is something that's quite intuitive, but it is quite interesting to hear how organisations have defined these elements that we think we know a lot about to kind of explore them a little bit. So Age UK have said that this is a subjective experience of lacking desired affection, closeness and social interaction with others. And it's one of the major factors that older people worry about. And the Hidden Citizens report from 2015 uh, describes loneliness as a negative experience that involves painful feelings of not belonging and a disconnectedness from others. It occurs when there is a discrepancy between the quantity and quality of social relationships that we want and those that we have. Thus, loneliness is a subjective psychological perception. It's quite nice, isn't it? Mm, Way to kind of frame it. So practically... It's kind of an unpleasant experience that occurs when someone's social relationship is deficient in some way, either Mm. in terms of the amount, so quantitatively, or the quality, qualitatively. Mm. And sometimes people talk about two components of of loneliness, a kind of distinction amount, so emotional loneliness and social loneliness. So emotional loneliness stemming from the absence of intimate relationships or a close emotional attachment, so, for example, a partner or a best friend... 
and then social loneliness, which is stemming from the absence of broader group of contacts or engaging in a social network. So, for example, normal friends, colleagues and people around where you live. And therefore it's actually possible to be lonely even when you're surrounded by others. So Mm. if you're living in a care home or in an assisted living accommodation, there may well be lots of people around, but you in yourself could be lonely um, if that's not fulfilling quantitatively or qualitatively what you need. So nearly half of all people aged over 75 uh, live alone. Mm. About 10% of people feel trapped in their own home. About 6% of older people, nearly about 600,000 people, leave their house once a week or less. Mm. And about a million older people say that they always or often feel lonely. And almost half of older adults in the UK over the age of 65 would say that television or pets are their main form of company. And loneliness can be as harmful to our health as smoking around 15 cigarettes a day. That's an incredible statement, isn't it? And this is from the Age UK document that they produced on loneliness. People with a high degree of loneliness are twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's as people with a low degree of loneliness. And that's just fascinating. Yes, is there a cause and effect there? <laughs> yeah. Is that is it a correlation? A, a correlation? Is it that people are getting a bit withdrawn at the very early Less stages stimulation. Of, of the outside? Well, is it, yeah, or is it related to the Alzheimer's disease that they withdraw and become lonely? Yeah, the apathy, yeah. yeah. Um, People who took part in more health-maintaining and independence-maintaining behaviours were less likely to feel isolated and more likely to feel that their community was a good one to grow old in. Mm. And around 200,000 older people in the UK do not receive the help they need to get out of their house or flat, and around 30% of people would like to leave more. Mm. And at this point, I'd just like to segue into something. When we were getting ready for the BGS Fringe Mm -hmm. event, we were talking about uh, films and, and things about older people. And uh, I came across a thing, uh, a film called Ferid, F-E-R-R-I-E-D, about uh, an older chap who used to be a university lecturer. Came about this through Kickstarter, actually. Okay. And he used to be a university lecturer and he lives on his own and his wife has died and his daughter has moved to Australia. And it's about his relationship with loneliness and his relationship with the taxi driver that takes him out to connect him to the wider world. Okay. And it's a short film. It's about 15 minutes long and I'd really recommend it. It's it's very good. Okay. So from the arts back to studies. Mm. Uh, there's a really big study that happens. Well, it's an ongoing study called the English Longitudinal Study of Ageing, ELSA, which we've talked about in some other episodes. It was evaluated for some of their data in 2013 and they split the concept of loneliness into four key elements. And they say this is feeling a lack of companionship, feeling left out, feeling isolated from others and feeling in tune with other people. And loneliness has an impact on well-being and a range of personal circumstances such as, as we said, poor health, living alone, a lack of support network. All of these are contributory factors to being lonely. And that also comes from the Office for National Statistics. And so they're both really big um, studies looking at a whole population sampling. And kind of in many ways, loneliness might be regarded as a geriatric giant. Yeah. So what are the geriatric giants, Ian? They are the eyes. Incontinence, yep. immobility, mm-hmm. instability mm-hmm. and impairment of intellect. Yes. And who wrote them down, Joe? Oh, God, I walked into that, didn't I? I don't know. <gasps> it's the sort of fact you love. You call yourself a geriatrician? <laughs> <sighs> Bernard Isaacs. Bernard Isaacs, there you go. Yeah. Most of the geriatric <laughs> giants in some way are associated, or you can see an association with loneliness. So it's clear for immobility, incontinence, uh, intellectual impairment and instability. If people are at risk of falling, they may go out less. Mm-hmm. It's part of the frailty uh, picture. 
There was a study that showed that lonely people are more likely to be using sedatives or sleeping pills and alcohol than others. And also that loneliness is associated with poor sight, hearing impairment, sleeping problems and dietary inadequacies as well. So you can see that kind of withdrawing from the world. So when you think about how, how can we engage people, engage you, in the assessment of loneliness of older people? And there are a number of scales that you can use to do that. Mm-hmm. And they're all summarised quite nicely in the campaign to end loneliness, which produced a report called The Missing Million. And there are four tools in this report that are suggested as um, things that are all quite quick to use. So the first is uh, the tool from the campaign to end loneliness, and it's their own measurement tool, which is a three-item question. The second is the de Jong-Gierveld loneliness scale, which is a six-item scale, which nicely has a mixture of mixture of emotional and social aspects. So, for example, the questions are about people experiencing a general sense of emptiness, which is felt to come within the emotional component, um, missing people, having having people around, and feeling rejected. All of which sit within the emotional section. And then there are three within the social section, which are having people to rely on when they have problems having people that they can trust completely and having enough people around to feel close to. So it's quite nice because that splits it up into those two sections. Mm. There's the UCLA loneliness scale, which is, again, three items, and there's another single-item scale. That's just saying, do you feel lonely? Yeah. And there is some argument that there's little difference between um, some subjective measure things like asking just is just asking that person, do you feel lonely, and these. And I guess it's about quantifying a little bit more if you were doing an evaluation or a study, then these would be quite useful. But, you know, it's important just kind of if you're thinking about it, just to ask someone. Yeah, and being positive, I think. And thinking about who should we be asking and when should we be asking them. Yeah. So that Hidden Citizens report also looked at factors that can be associated with loneliness and identified a number of pathways into loneliness um, that kind of separate out into internal factors and external factors. Mm. It's really sort of sociological way of looking at it, I think, sort of pathways into something. Mm. Um, makes me think of Emile Durkheim and he talked about pathways into suicide um, and his okay. original, the original sociologist. The original? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, cool. Someone had to start it. True, very true. <laughs> so this talks about internal factors and external factors, doesn't it? Yeah, so the internal factors really reflect the importance of understanding the person. So what's their socioeconomic characteristics? What are their values, their beliefs, their personality? What's their capacity for resilience like? Their self-esteem, their self-confidence or the lack of those things? And the way that they understand and relate to themselves and others. Yeah. And then the external factors are thinking about this person in a wider context. So what does their social world look like to them? How is it experienced by them? Do they have supportive relationships with family and friends? Are there local formal or informal support groups and social groups that they belong to or Mm -hmm. that they could belong to? Are there factors that prevent social connections, such as being out in a rural environment, not being able to drive, lack of transport? And have they experienced a significant change in their life recently, which might be things like bereavement, which might lead on to moving house to be closer to the rest of the family, coupled to maybe retirement or ill health or stopping driving. Mm. So when should we be thinking about loneliness? I think it's tricky. Um, Estimates of prevalence of loneliness tend to concentrate on the older population Mm. and they vary wildly. So fairly reputable research comes up with figures ranging from 6 to 13% Mm -hmm. of older people 
So that would be up to 8.5 million people if you take That's the UK huge. population of just over 65 mm. million at the moment. Um, and that would be people that are just being described as often or always lonely. There may be other important factors at play, but there is evidence, particularly from Elsa, that being alone, especially without a partner or spouse, is one of the major determinants of loneliness in the majority of older adults in England. Hmm. And there's something called the GO Project, which is based at Sheffield, uh, which is called the Growing Older Project. Mm -hmm. And it's got 25 themes, and isolation and loneliness are one of these themes. Okay. And they found that 7% of older people were often lonely and about 31% of people reported being sometimes lonely. Between 11 and 17% were socially isolated in 2001 and those rates remained relatively stable for the previous 50 years. Yeah, but not all older people are lonely and it's not just older people that are lonely. It's yeah. a very dynamic concept yeah. and it varies across the life course. So it may well be that you're lonely at some point in your life and then things change and, and you're no longer lonely. Yeah. There are some specific things that may um, impact older adults a little bit more. So, for example, loss of friends. So having friends is a more important factor in warding off loneliness than having frequent contact with those friends. Yeah. Being in poor health. Um, having reduced family contact. So contact with children um, is especially effective antidote to loneliness. Yeah. Um, and that appears to be cross-generational contacts as well. So with young people and children as well as your children. And that's something that you see the care homes for four-year-olds. Yes, Dr. Yes. Raiko. Yes. Yeah. Um, which kind of demonstrates that quite nicely. If yeah. you haven't seen it, it was on Channel 4. Check it out. And and it's the thing with children is interesting because it doesn't have to be your children. Yes. Um, it's just having contact with children and young people as well as your own children if they're grown up. But interestingly, having children and not feeling close to them mm. is associated with higher rates of loneliness than being childless, mm. which makes me think back to that documentary or that, that short film that I mentioned, Ferid. Um, there's a great uh, scene in that where he's trying to get in touch with his daughter who's in Australia. And actually, so he has children, but she's grown up and she's moved away and he can't get in touch with her. I should say it's quite sad. That, it's a good <laughs> film, but it's quite sad. I'll come back to that you again. be careful with these. I heard someone say, um, oh, you know, my daughter does my shopping for me every week. And so we assumed that uh, her daughter lived nearby, but she was doing it online from Canada. Blimey. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Uh, so... We're looking at uh, determinants of loneliness. So we've talked about loss of friends, we've talked about poor health, we've talked about family contact and child contact. And the final bit is wealth. And there's a clear and significant correlation between low socioeconomic status and loneliness. And although wealth is an important determinant of people's life satisfaction, its effects decline when you're over 75. So the effects of being wealthy or being in a financially stable situation isn't so protective. Yeah, OK. So the th people then, to summarise that, the people that we're, we're looking out for are older people, but not exclusively, people who've lost their friends, people with low health levels, people with a reduced family contact, and then people who, uh, whose wealth status is either lower or has changed, maybe. So what can we do about it? So there are a number of health promotion interventions, and... It's tricky because mm. loneliness is complex. There's lots of complex causes. It's not a disease process. Yeah. So any schemes need to take lots of the different circumstances into account. Yeah. So there is a systematic review of health promotion interventions, which was published a little while ago now, in 2005. Mm -hmm. And that looked at 
schemes to try and target these people we've just talked about. So targeting lower socioeconomic groups, people who have been widowed, people who are physically isolated, people who have had to give up driving, those living with sensory impairments, not something we've talked about yet, mm-hmm. actually, and the very old. And, and if you target those groups of people, that's where the uh, intervention the schemes benefit. are the most effective. Mm. And within those, the projects that are effective share a number of characteristics. Mm. So they tended to be group interventions with a focused educational input or they provided targeted supported activities. They targeted specific groups, as we've mentioned some of them. They enabled some level of participant or facilitated control or consulted with the intended target group before they designed the interventions. Yeah. They trying to understand what people wanted rather than just putting something on. They evaluated an existing service or activity or were developed and conducted within an existing service and use physical activity interventions, and they yeah. tend to be quite effective yeah. as well. Yeah, so taking what's there and making it more. The ineffective interventions all shared one characteristic. They were all one-to-one activities conducted in people's own homes. Mm. So that does not work. It's got to be um, playing on this group setting. And a more recent review found very similar things. It was able to pull out a few more key elements of what might make an intervention particularly successful, and those common characteristics were developed with a theoretical basis, um, offering social activity and or support within a group format, and also interventions in which older people were active participants or interventions in which older adults were active participants and they also appear to be highly likely to be effective. Yeah, and that was Dickens, Dickens et al. al. In, in 2011. So we'll put the link to both of those in the, mm. in the show notes. Um, so just, just as an example, really, one study looked at the crucial role of community centres in minority ethnic older women as providing a meeting point for sharing identity, language, Mm. cultures and experiences. Yeah, and that's something we see quite often, isn't it, is people whose um, cultural or language needs aren't met, particularly if there's some cognitive impairment or even without it, that can make them quite isolated um, because services aren't necessarily catering for them and that can be quite challenging to find somewhere. But you do have to get people to go. My sister-in-law used to teach English as a foreign language in some of the islands off the north coast of Australia Mm -hmm. and she wanted more time in the community centre to to run the session for longer and uh, she wasn't allowed to to sort of extend her time because the the group before her was exactly this, it was an opportunity for older local indigenous people to uh, come together to do arts and crafts. And so Sarah turned up for a few weeks in a row, sort of an hour early, to see what sort of arts and crafts they were doing. And there was never, never anyone there. <laughs> and she spoke to the person that, that ran the session and said, you know, look, there's never anyone there. And she said, oh, no. Well, we had to set this up. It's not their sort of thing. They won't come to anything like that. <laughs> but they had to set it up and it had to be paid for this, this hour's thing because that was where the grant came from and stuff. Oh, no. So you can set all these things up, but people won't necessarily come to them. You have to make sure that it fits to yes. the culture of the people oh, that you're working with. to do, yeah. yeah. So that's something we're going to talk about a little bit more now. Maybe we should send them this, this episode. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that could help them. Yeah. So one service that is quite uh, well known is befriending services. And the jury is out a little bit on whether these are overall beneficial aren't they they're kind of low level and felt to be and felt to be quite effective one national project found that the most important finding was that the service helped older people to gain confidence re-engage with the community and become socially active again so there was a 
a review of five different befriending services, again, looking at what was effective. So kind of thinking about what's the recipe for effective befriending services. And they found that successful befriending services offer some compensation for the loss of elective friendships, um, as in so when people's social networks are shrinking because people might be passing away mm-hmm. as they get older. They provided opportunities for emotional support and reciprocal social support through the development of safe, confiding relationships. Good conversational skills and empathy were unsurprisingly found to be the foundation of successful relationships within which commonalities were then sought. Yeah, and that the befrienders broadened the befriendees' perspectives on life. So particularly thinking about uh, older adults in residential care, the people that they were talking to Mm. um, broadened their perspectives on life. There's a nice um, system in London, I think it's called the Good Gym, where um, to encourage younger people who want to go running um, to run to a care home say, to deliver the paper to someone and then they run home again. That's very nice. So kind of doing something socially motivated with your, um, with your time. So it's, you, you're both getting something yeah, out of it. That's very cool. Mm. And social engagement was a powerful mechanism of action, particularly in terms of connecting people back into their community or reinforcing social roles and connecting to a past life um, that had been disrupted by loss. So getting, sort of making the befriending link back to something that's personal to, to the person that you're working with. And there's a programme called Call In Time, which is run by Age UK. And there are details of this on their website. And it's very easy to sign people up mm. to this. And it's a telephone call at a set time a week or every two weeks or every month or whatever. You can fill in their details on the website with the phone number and, and people will call them, the same mm. person, and they will get to know them. And, and it's a way of getting people some befriendment. Befriendment. <laughs> So men, hmm. we lots of what we've been talking about have been kind of generic services and this is one of the areas actually women have probably been studied a little bit more than men. Men probably have, in general, a different set of needs to, to older women. Um, it's something that's really important because one of the theories behind women living longer is that they have better social support networks and that their well-being is enhanced by that as they get older where men don't have that. So they, they definitely have a different set of needs overall. And loneliness is reported by about 5 to 7% of older men. And research has shown that social isolation, loneliness and stressful social ties are common in men and associated with poor physical and mental health, high risk of disability, and poor recovery from illness and early death. But finding social activities that are acceptable by older men is a challenge. It's mm. difficult. Um, they're much less likely to join groups than older women. And that's where much of the intervention evidence that we've seen is. And so if, if they're not going to join a group, then then they're in kind of an evidence-free zone and everything we've seen that says that you have to stick to the evidence for an intervention to be successful. However, there is that evidence we just talked about of what will work and targeting it to your audience, knowing exactly what they want to do and what to get out of it. Yes, so I think the, probably the best way of doing that with men has been, the, the one that's been studied the most is using work-like activities, yeah. um, which then give men a sense of achievement and belonging. So the studies demonstrate that successful interventions which facilitate the learning of new skills or the using or improving of skills that they already have, um, a way of sharing knowledge with their peers, all of these promote a sense of accomplishment and provide opportunities for engagement in that manner. And there's a programme that I really like called Men in Sheds. Men in Sheds. 
started in Australia, I think, didn't it? Mm. And now has groups in the US, Canada, Ireland and the UK. And the core elements of men's sheds are that they're voluntary, they're social organisations providing hands-on activities for men over the age of 50, and they are co-participants in a defined space, so there is a shed. And that just provides a place for them to meet, to socialise, learn new skills and take part in activities with other men. Yeah, and the role of the shed is to encourage and engage men in informal adult learning, really. Mm. And, and that's particularly important. Yeah, so they're equipped with a range of workshop tools um, and the programmes aim to improve men's physical, emotional, social and spiritual health and well-being. Yeah, and some of the sheds also have health-related information to mm-hmm. signpost men to relevant services. In almost all cases, this is tailored to the local context rather than being something that's standardised. Yeah. Um, and there's been an evaluation of some UK pilots of this, hasn't there? Mm. So they looked at two broad categories of shed experience, if you like. <laughs> the first is, for some people, sheds represent a pleasant and desirable hobby or activity. And the second is for other people, particularly for men at risk of social isolation or emotional breakdown, they actually provide a vital support mechanism. So they're mm. doing what the aim was, really. Yeah, which was to reduce isolation and contribute to mental well-being through social contact and meaningful activity. Yeah. So where you can reach the target population, there's evidence to suggest that sheds provide important access to social support for those experiencing loneliness, isolation or depression. But targeting the population is the difficult bit. Mm. There's a vital factor for success in all three of the UK sheds, and that was the coordinator. Each had a different level of input, but their role is integral to the success of the project. So so the way that they do it is different, but having somebody to coordinate it is important. Yeah, it's not just putting men in a shed. And the final thing I thought we should touch on is around new technologies. And I thought there would be loads on this. (laughs) You know, I thought there'd be loads about, you know, social media and computers and chat rooms and computers in chat rooms and stuff like that, but... I couldn't find a lot. Mm. So if you can, please do send it to me and we'll put it in the show notes. But there was a review of 17 studies back in 2004, so quite a while ago, um, essentially showing that further research intervention <laughs> into interventions using new technology to reduce loneliness is recommended. I mean, it's good that they did it, but it's always disappointing yeah. when that's the outcome, isn't it? There was a, a further study of 220 people over the age of 55, and, and this is really interesting, showed that the greater of the use of the internet as a communication tool was associated with lower levels of social loneliness. But if people were using the internet to find new people, that was associated with a higher level of emotional loneliness. So if you're using the internet to to talk to people you already know... So stay connected. Staying connected, that's good. If you're using it to make new connections... So Skype or video calling over the internet... To stay As connected. Yes, it's good. But going to a chat room to find new people to talk to is a... A marker of loneliness. Yeah. yeah. The MDT Podcast. So, it's the time of the week. It's time for the MD teaser. It is. And so this is an MDT item guessing game. And again, our clues this week have been provided by Pamela Trangmar, who's a mm-hmm. physician associate with me. And again, I have a very long list of words that I'm not allowed to, to use uh, when talking to Joe. Okay. So no I go, cheating this shall time. Shall I go first? I didn't cheat last time. Shall if I, go I see first? any hesitation, pauses. What was that game? What they used to say? Just a minute. Hesitation, deviation, yeah. or repetition. Yes. Yes. So. Are you are ready? ready? Yeah. Go. 
So this is a way of getting in touch with... Telephone, fax. Staff. Bleep. Partic- yes. Amazing. Nine <laughs> seconds. So oh, the, wait, the list... Yeah. Yeah. I really feel like I should get the points if I get it quickly. <laughs> the list was communication device, box, electronic, emergency, individual number, junior doctors, consultants, non-medical staff members, liquid crystal display, clip-on, <laughs> pager, message, buttons, battery, portable, activated telephone system or beeper. Wow. So um, I'm glad you got that. <laughs> <laughs> we did that as an earlier one. Do you remember when we, we used to play the other game? Well, did we have pager then? Um, we did, yeah. didn't we? Yeah, and I said it's onomatopoeic. You, yes. look, you looked at me blankly yes, for a while. Yes, yes, yes. That's okay. still my favourite clue ever. <laughs> okay, um, I have got a list of clues here now for my item. I took a screen grab of it and I think some of them might be missing. But anyway, I do have seven okay. words that I can't use. Three, two, one. Okay. Go. This is a piece of equipment that almost every doctor will have. Some nurses uh, will have them now as well as some physios. Um, they are used to listen. Is it a stethoscope? It is. How long was mine? I got nine seconds. Eleven. Eleven. So close. Yeah, so close. Now we've got one for you. Uh, we're going to hand over to Tappy, who's a clinical fellow in technology enhanced learning, working with us. And here's Tappy. No one guessed our last MD teaser, which was an inhaler. It was a tricky one. So I have a new sound for you for today's MD teaser. Keep your guesses coming in as ever on Twitter using the hashtag MD teaser. Here it is. So what do you think it is? Let us know on Twitter at MDT underscore podcast using the hashtag MDTeaser. Good. Or on Facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. Or at our website, www.thehearingaidpodcast.org.uk. At the top right hand corner, there is a button where you can email us directly if you would like to let yeah. us know. And also on the website, there is the CPD log, there is the infographics, there is the show notes from this episode and all the other episodes. And they are mapped to your postgraduate curriculums. Yeah, there is a link to a CPD form that you can use. And as you know by now, and I'm sure you've all been joining in, we'll have a Twitter chat next Wednesday at 8.30 on this using the hashtag MDTclub. So grab a cup of tea at 8.15, sit down decaf and join probably. us. Yeah, decaf tea. And join us for that Twitter club. The MDT will reconvene in two weeks' time. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a Hearing Aid Podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.